Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It's a real pleasure today to invite Serge Kahili King, the author of Changing Reality, Puna Practices to Create the Life You Want. He has a doctorate in psychology from California Western University. He studied with master shamans from Africa to Hawaii and has trained thousands of people in his seminars. He is the president of Aloha International, a nonprofit organization dedicated to spreading the Aloha spirit of peace through blessing. He's also the founder of Order of Huna International, which teaches workshops in personal effectiveness and trains shaman peacemakers and healers to work in modern urban environments. Mr. King is regarded as a kahuna kupuya, or master practitioner of the Hawaiian shaman way. He writes extensively on Hawaiian culture and huna, the Polynesian philosophy and practice of effective living, and on the spirit of aloha, and is also a novelist. He resides in Volcano Hawaii. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Serge Kahili King to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning and aloha. Aloha. <laughs> I read one of your books years ago, and I really, really loved it and was so delighted that you decided to write a book on Psy, on changing reality. And I loved the practical information that you had in this book, because I think that a lot of authors write philosophical books that are interesting, but it's so nice to have the goodies in there to work with, some raw material. That's what I like to specialize in. Fantastic. So I'm just delighted that you're here. And I have a lot of notes here. And there's so much in your book, I'm not worried I'm going to give too much away. (laughs) I think I'd like to ask you, first of all, what the spirit of aloha is and what huna is. Okay. Uh, First of all, aloha is the basis of Hawaiian culture. Uh, As a word, it means love. And it's very interesting that that's what we use here to say hello and goodbye. It's always a blessing of love. Because uh, it doesn't really mean hello or goodbye, but that's what we use. And uh, as the spirit of aloha, it's a spirit. You know, aloha not only means love, but it has to do with kindness and friendship and mercy and treating people, sharing. Uh, if you look in the roots of the word, it means to share a happy experience face to face. So that gives you some idea. When we say the aloha spirit, it means to act with all of these aloha qualities. Beautiful. And talk to us about huna. Huna is a philosophy that I was taught by the Hawaiian family that adopted me. And it's based on seven ideas uh, about life. And I'll run through those quickly. Uh, Each of them is profound, but they can be stated easily. And they're they're not unique in the world. Uh, What's unique are some of the interpretations and the, the putting of these particular ideas together. The first one says that the world is what you think it is. And um, basically, if you want to change your world, you have to change how you think. And the second one says that, how can I put this, there are no limits. And this means both that the universe is infinite and that we are all connected with everything. The next one says that energy flows where attention goes. A very powerful concept that wherever you put your attention... Uh, your energy moves in that direction. Your physical, emotional, mental, spiritual energy moves in that direction. And if there's enough focus, it can attract energy from others. The next says, now is the moment of power. This is a really good one. It's based on actually Hawaiian language, which doesn't have a past tense or a future tense. I thought that was so fascinating, by the way, for everybody listening, on page 47 and 49 of his book, Changing Reality, he talks about language, and we'll get into that even more, but continue. Okay, well, this idea says that now is the moment of power. This moment is the only time you can change anything. You can't change it in the past. You can't change it in the future. If you want to change, you can change the past, but you have to do it now. You can change the possible future, but you have to do it now. This is the only place to act. And then it says, from aloha, to love is to be happy with. That's what love really means. In love, in this concept, there's no unhappiness. There's no jealousy. There's no pain, no suffering. Love is the happy part of a relationship. 
And then we say that all power comes from within. And this really means from spirit, not from, you know, the particular individual personality. So uh, when we can connect to that, and the power is not the power to make anything happy. We have another, the next one that says something about that. But it's the power of choice, the power of will. And then finally, we say effectiveness is the measure of truth. Uh, we're not interested in an absolute truth, even if there is such a thing, although I can give it to you. Truth is. And once you add anything to that, it's no longer absolute. So we say we deal with practical truth, like the way we use a calendar, okay, or, or uh, our, the way we do uh, with a clock, a time. Uh, those are made up. Those are perfectly arbitrary, but we act like they're true because it's so convenient, it's so useful. So we're looking at effective truth. If it works, it's true. And that is a very, very short uh, summary of the uh, concept of Huna. Beautiful. You are a shaman that has been taught not only by your father, but your father's teacher, right? Yes. What does it mean to be a shaman for people that are listening that don't have that frame of reference? Right, a shaman is a type of healer. And we have, first of all have to understand that the, the only real shamans in terms of that particular word are uh, in the uh, Tungus people in Siberia. And that's the term they used for this particular type of healer. And that anthropologists then picked up on and applied elsewhere where they saw a similar type of person. The shaman is a person who works with healing or relationships, and relationships between people, between people and their own selves, between people and nature, between people and spirit. And basically, they have some other characteristics. They have the idea that's common with many peoples, that everything is alive, aware, and responsive, but shamans also do things like uh, think of dreams and, and uh, what, what are sometimes called shaman journeys, not as guided imagery experiences, but uh, going to real places uh, and having real experiences and then being able to shift back into this consciousness. So they are, they, their uh, actual practices range from the most seemingly simple and ordinary counseling to some uh, what apparently seem to be some very, very far out practices like uh, like the journeys, as I mentioned, is one of them, and being able to communicate with, not just speak to, but communicate with uh, various aspects of nature. What does it mean to you in terms of a translation for the listeners when you do an island blessing or any kind of a blessing, what does it mean and how does it work? Well, we use a particular meaning from the Hawaiian when we talk about a blessing. Uh, in Hawaiian, the word for blessing is uh, either ho'omaika'i or ho'opomaika'i. And it means to strengthen something. So we're not just saying a, a nice wish for goodness. We're actually focusing on whatever will strengthen what uh, what we want to strengthen. So a blessing, for instance, we might uh, uh, bless somebody's strength and and will to get through a trying situation. We might bless somebody's body's ability to heal. We might bless. And when we're looking at some of the situations in the world uh, where there's conflict, we'll bless the peacemakers, uh, bless the teachers, bless the, the, the people who are doing practical things to solve the problem, give them strength and energy. So blessing is a strengthening. That's beautiful. Something good. Absolutely beautiful. I never heard it described that way. One of the things you talked about early on in the book was the English language and actually taking a look at some of the limitations of the English language, particularly when it comes to the verb to be. You say, while extremely useful in some ways, it carries a presumption of existence and identification that often interferes with creativity. I went, wow, when you wrote that. Can you talk a little bit about the English language and how we, let's say in America here, may be struggling with the way we're using language? 
Well, there's, there's two aspects of it. One is the verb to be, and like I said, you know, can be useful, but if we say, I am angry, well, that's an identification, and people begin to identify with the anger, or I am sick uh, is an even worse one, uh, because then you, that's how you begin to identify yourself, and you think of yourself as a sick person, rather than I'm feeling sick. Right which is more accurate and more changeable. And we tend to do this with uh, other things around us, other people and situations. Uh, when, we, when we use that verb, it's, it's a natural part of the language, but that's one of the limitations where it gets us into almost a helpless situation. Even if we say, this is an impossible situation, well, how are you going to work with that? That makes it far more difficult rather than saying, uh, this looks really difficult. What can we do about it? Totally different, isn't it? That's right. You said also that something about the English grammar forces us to think in linear terms of past, present, and future. And that because of the language structure, the assumption that time is linear by nature is extremely strong throughout the cultures that use this type of structure. Can you talk about how the English grammar forces us to think in linear terms of past, present, and future? Give a couple examples, if you would. Well, sure. I mean, if we talk about uh, the, the way the language works, if we talk about something that happened last week, it's almost as if there's a feeling that there's a pathway between us and the event, and that the event is still affecting us and having a, having a big impact on how we what we can do and how we do things. And so there's always this relationship to the past that uh, is, is uh, influencing how we think about the present and how we think about the future. Uh, the future is also thought of as something out there that we have to prepare for, get ready to bump into. Uh, we, we talk about it again in those verbal terms that, that make it a thing. <laughs> and uh, this, yeah. this uh, makes it uh, sometimes uh, much more difficult to deal with creatively. So when we can take a different point of view, when we can think of the past as something that's over, because we can't touch it, feel it, taste it, interact with it in any direct way, for practical purposes, it doesn't exist anymore. What we're dealing with actually is not the past itself. We're dealing with memories. Right. And when we can start th- realizing that, which is actual, well, we can work with memories. We can change memories. We can alter them. We can change at least how we react to them. Then the past doesn't become something overbearing and, and uh, impossible to deal with. That's fantastic. What led you to do this particular book on Psy and Changing Reality? Well, it was the idea that uh, my uh, Hawaiian uncle taught me about looking at the world in terms of four different ways, and that's, that's what is the basis of the book is, uh, that we can shift our perspective and have, take a different paradigm or belief set and interpret the world that way. And so one of these is the, uh, what is a very popular one, is the objective way that we often call the scientific way because scientists love it so much. Uh, it's that everything's out there, separate from us. And each of these has their benefits and their limitations. But that's, that's one of them, the objective. Then there's the subjective, which is more where the psychic things come in. And we can look at the world this way. We can look at the world as if it is connected Uh, energetically and telepathically and in other ways, and that communication is with uh, things that ordinarily in an objective way you would think are impossible, why we can talk to our cars and and they run better when we do that, when we're nice to them, our plants grow better when we have a good relationship with them. Uh, That's what we call second level or subjective. And level is not a good word, but again, that's a limitation in English. Uh, then there's a, the way of looking at things uh, very shamanically, actually. Uh, this is kind of like the base viewpoint of shamans, that it's all a dream. And we're, we're looking at dreams. And we're moving in and out of dreams. 
and interacting with our dreams with other people's dreams. And so we become, uh, with, with skill looking at this uh, point of view, we become, uh, have the possibility of being the dreamer, which gives us an ability to change the dreams. It's very beautiful. It's actually very artistic mosaic you're describing. Yeah, and let me just mention the one more. The one more is the, the more mystical point of view, and that's that you know, everything is one. Uh, from the shamanic point of view, however, we, we modify that because when you take the point of view like a, like a true mystic, that everything is one and you want to become one with everything, well, that's a nice place to, we look at that as a nice place to visit, but, but the problem is that if you're one with everything, you don't have any friends. <laughs> and it's very hard to throw a party. So we take it down a notch where we learn how to merge with the pattern of different things for learning and for teaching and for healing. So we can merge with the pattern of a tree. This was done in ancient times as a way of learning about things without having to take them apart, uh, about animals, about geology, about people, about anything. We do this up to the, how can I put it, a kind of standard metaphor is we do it up to 99%, but we never lose the 1% of ourselves. That enables us to go in and out of these patterns. So these are things that we can switch at. Now, in the book, I think I do this, but when it becomes hard to understand, I just have people look around them and I have them look at a room as if they were a interior decorator and then as if they were a carpenter. And then as if they were a real estate broker (laughs) in these different ways. And what they're doing is shifting from one set of ideas to a different set of ideas. And each time you shift, different things become important, other things fade away, and different things become possible. So it's really something that human beings know how to do very easily. We just hear in this system, it's simply organized in a way that enables you to do a lot more things. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. No matter what the state of the economy is, there will always be time-honored traditions and special events. The Sterling Hut has been in business since 2008, offering a wide range of fantastic sterling silver products, including finely crafted mint julep cups, personalized baby shower gifts, photo albums, exquisite jewelry boxes and awards, and so much more. The Sterling Hut is an authorized Silver Star international reseller of fine silver products and anniversary gifts. The business is owned by Jewel and Bob Howard. If you would be interested in buying someone a gift of pure sterling silver or sterling plated silver, you can call 1-888-819-1009. Get a 15% discount by going to the Sterling Hut, the Sterling, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, Hut, H-U-T, dot com, and saying it's rainmaking time. They will honor a 15% discount for you. Beautiful sterling silver gifts for all of life's occasions, manufactured in Italy and handcrafted by skilled artisans. They can also be engraved in sterling picture frames, oval and rectangular silver trays, champagne ice buckets, silver goblets, coffee and tea service, coffee pots, silver mugs, candelabras, and silver jewelry unrivaled in design and style. Go to the Sterling Hut at sterlinghut.com. And back to the show. What had you get into exploring telepathy? You say it's very, very important. Actually, it's more important than we think for many, many reasons. We had invited Dr. Rupert Sheldrake on the show last year, and of course he just went through this big thing with the TED Talks where he was removed from the TED Talks and taken off the portal because they didn't accept a lot of what his research was about with regard to telepathy. But I thought that what you talked about, it being a necessity and how it works, was very eloquently written. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about telepathy, because it seems to be an idea whose time has come that's now no longer at the fringe. It's now center stage. Well, it's on the way anyway. Sure. But the thing is that somebody recently uh, asked me if I taught people to be telepathic. And I said, of course not. 
we're all telepathic all the time. What I do is teach people how to use it. Telepathy is a given. There are so many instances, if we can, we can see the effects of it so easily, and so we treat it as a, as a given, as a part of our nature. And not only our nature, the, part, the nature of everything. And so learning how to, uh, stepping into that paradigm in which you accept telepathy, why, wow, then it becomes a whole different kind of world and different kinds of things that can be done and creative connections happen that wouldn't happen otherwise and possibilities of, like I said, healing and teaching and learning are greatly magnified. It's one of our most powerful resources, but it isn't something that you have to teach people how to do. You have to teach people how to use it. I love that. I love that. Because basically the fundamental assumption is it comes with you into this life, into any life. It comes with you. That's right. The neat thing, too, is that the animals are doing it anyway. They're doing it all the time. They just don't have all the noise about it that we do. That's right. Right? Right. Uh, And here's something that might help some people um, with it because – you know, one of the scientific objections, of course, is they, since they're so objective anyway, is that, you know, the brain doesn't have enough power to send out energy. Well, no, it doesn't. But that's not how it's done. The telepathic connection is through emotional energy. That's a great distinction. I like that. And you know that there are some people in the remote viewing world that are not even sure that the brain per se is anything more than an interface with this, that we have a consciousness that's using our brain as an interface. <laughs> oh, sure. Well, the brain the you brain know. is like the software, or I could suppose you could say the hardware that we use to interact with this particular world. I noticed you kind of reframed the word ESP to mean extended sensory perception. Talk a little bit about that reframe and why it's important. Yes, because it's not an extra sense. We use all of our senses, and we can use, if we think in terms of this extended sensory perception, all we're doing is extending it into uh, uh, being able to see farther, being able to hear at a greater distance, uh, being able to even, if you want to, smell, taste, and touch uh, further out than you normally think you can. Uh, so th- these are extensions of our regular senses. I like that you reframe that. I think it really helps people get it much easier. And it makes ESP more accessible versus less accessible. I wanted to talk to you about the Dynamine technique that you have made available online at alohainternational.org, also at huna.org. And I think that's really neat that you made that available to people. Talk a little bit about it and why it would be a good thing for people to have a look at it and trial some things you've put there. Okay, well, first of all, I have to say that I was inspired by EFT. Yeah, I was going to ask you if this is a derivative of the emotional freedom technique. Not a derivative. Okay. Uh, but it was inspired by that. Okay, definitely. great. That's great. I'm glad uh, you acknowledged When that. I was first uh, uh, introduced to that EFT technique, I was very, very impressed because it did the same things our regular techniques did, but it did them quite, a lot of them it did faster. Uh, I did not agree with the theories behind it, and um, but the effectiveness was highly impressive. Now, what I looked at was the fact that we have many techniques, traditional Hawaiian techniques, that produce the same effects, but uh, often uh, took longer than, than that particular one. Well, you know, I go by the rule of the duck, uh, if it looks like a duck and acts like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. <laughs> so this means if you've got two different things that are producing the same effect, there's some common denominator. And so I made the assumptions about this common denominator, which is basically relieving tension in the, from the Hawaiian point of view. And so I just sitting down thinking about this, and then I, I got another inspiration was what would happen if I took, let's say, four of our best techniques and piled them together so that I have, I, I was reading and I did learn that there is something in the body called an accumulation effect, where if certain things are done in fairly rapid succession, it, you know, the effect accumulates, almost like 
um, a bunch of waves coming together to produce a bigger wave. So then I put that together and experimented and tried it, and it was, wow, it was very, very powerful. And um, I put it together in such a way that made it very, very simple. Is this part of the way it's modulated, or it's just the way that the different content that you're introducing is fused together, or both? Well, it's like I said, the accumulation effect of okay. doing these things in a sequence that keeps adding to the effect that we're after, which is changing the mind and changing the body at the same time. That's great. And so uh, we made it extremely simple. We have five-year-olds find it easy to do. And uh, we've been able to apply it to animals uh, as well as human beings. And the beautiful thing about it is it's a technique you do yourself. That's great. Have you had people give you feedback about it? Oh, tremendous amounts of feedback, yes. Are they thanking you and sending flowers? (laughs) I actually haven't received any flowers yet, but I get all all sorts of kudos. It's so amazing what can be done with it and what people have done with it. It's beautiful. So I wrote a book about that. I explain it, and I talk about the physiology of it and the background of it, and then the most of the book is case studies from our practitioners around the world. Fantastic. What's the name of the book? Uh, Healing for the Millions. I love it. Do you hear that, everybody? Healing for the Millions. Sounds like a great book to pick up. But we also, you know, the book is wonderful if you like something more in-depth, but we also make it available uh, in a free booklet form uh, online in 25 different languages and we send out individual booklets in English to anyone in the world. Fantastic. At no cost. That's awesome. Talk about spreading love and healing. I noticed you read Richard Bach's Illusions and were inspired by him. I am too. (laughs) Very. He's one of my favorite authors. God love him. Talk a little bit about the blue rose in there. People will find it when they read Changing Reality, but share a little bit about that. This is one of the most amazing and sometimes fun things. Uh, And again, this was inspired by Bach. When you focus on something, and and you you kind of have to, what we've been doing is learning how to do it with, uh, with no effort so that there's no tension in the way. But when you really focus on something, because of this fact of telepathy, what happens is within a short period of time, um, nearest available equivalents of what you were focus on, well, focusing on uh, begin to appear in your experience. Um, the Blue Rose idea, uh, I think the one that I mentioned in there, was that uh, we had done this as a class project and then uh, the next day, uh, for the very first time, I'm not sure about the details, but I think it was that my mother came in to my office uh, wearing a dress with blue roses. And then she also, in the course of conversation that I did not ask for, uh, I, had, I had given her a birthday card with a red rose, and she, she was very grateful. And she says, your father used to give me a blue rose. So it and, starts appearing in your... Right. In, wow. And when we did it with cl- as a classroom project on, during workshops, it was amazing. We, we uh, would decide on something that would be very strange. And one of the ones we picked in, in Europe one time was a green cat. Oh, my. <laughs> and we did that uh, in the, in, uh, on one day, in the afternoon of one day. The next morning, there were so many green cat experiences uh, that it was totally amazing. Somebody gave me a green cat that they saw in a window. How is that possible? Was it painted? No, no, it was jade. <laughs> oh, okay. I was going to say. No, no, no. I never met a green cat in my life, but it's possible, I'm sure. And then, <laughs> and then someone uh, that evening, after we had done it, again, without any talking about it, someone had received a book of paintings from a friend featuring a green cat. That's amazing. And it just went, it just went on and on from that. Now, there's another example you gave about purple feathers. Oh, yeah. Come on, talk about that one. Well, the Purple Feathers, we did that as a class project in uh, Hawaii. And then people started getting feathers all over the place. (laughs) And a couple of the interesting ones were somebody went home uh, to France, I think it was, and uh, um, I I think it was a relative, maybe the daughter, uh, gave her a gift of a purple feather when she came in the door. 
and uh, people found purple feathers on the floor in different places. Uh, it was, that was an amazing experience. Wow. Serge, do you speak French? Yes. Are you French? From the family, yes. Oh, my. Influent? Fairly well. Fairly. Now, I understand you talk to the weather, but because I'm the founder and chief executive officer of the rainmaking company and the host and producer of its rainmaking time, I must talk to you about how you talk to the weather. What do you say to the weather? Hi, weather. <laughs> and, That's how we start. Okay. The whole thing about it is, from, from the point of view that we teach, uh, you can have the most influence on the weather when you first make friends with it. And, of course, as with anything that you want to get to know well, you've got to get to know it well. Uh, the friendship deepens the more you know about someone or something. And so, you know, you can, you can just do it as a matter of course, of course. You know, you can say, gee, Will, I'd like it to, to rain, or I'd like it to be sunny, or, or I, I would wish this or wish that, or please do this for me. It's like the old children's thing that would work for children very well. Rain, rain, go away, come again some other day. You remember that? Sure. And what was that? That was an assumption that the rain could hear you and would respond. And we have had so many, so many experiences. But the point is, it's an influence, not a control. And the influence is greater when there's a friendly relationship is the only way I can see it. When it's something you like, something you're interested in, something you feel good about, and if you shift into one of the other perspectives, can have a, a real sense of kinship or friendship with it. When you're doing that, when you're friends with the weather, are you in effect calling in the weather at a certain point or invoking weather to happen a certain way? What's the language you would use? Well, the language is not important. It's the intention that matters most. Okay. And, of course, there are different ways. You can do it. Uh, I guess I was more trying to figure out, is it an invocation? No, 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 no. It's okay. very, very casual. Okay. There's nothing wrong with an invocation. There's nothing wrong with a formal chant or prayer. That's another way of communicating. Um, but it's also just easy enough to say, you know, uh, hi, clouds. Uh, how about uh, moving away from our picnic spot while you're while you're coming to us? Rather have you rain over there if you don't mind. It can be that way too. Actually, I hear that that's done at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena every year. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you know what's interesting. I'm, I'm very serious, though. <laughs> well, I'm serious too. What's interesting with the Rose Bowl are the not only the number of years, which I think is around 200 now, um, but anyway. Uh, not only the number of years, but the rare occasions, no matter what's happening on the day before and the day after, the very rare occasions where it has rained. It is almost always sunny. And what you have there is a mass... Intent? Not formal, a mass intent and expectation. Yeah, isn't that powerful? Oh, very. Some type of alchemical transformation of thought, intent, and it's showing up. Sure, but most of that is, is unconscious. It's just there. Fascinating. But because it involves so many people, why, um, you know, the weather responds. Years ago, there was this African dance I went to, and this big guy from Benin, Africa, sat me down. Oh, yeah, that's why I used to live there. Really? Yes. Anyway, I was doing these dances, and the guy was looking for a representative here in the country. And anyway, we sat down. He explained to me that the rainmakers in Africa are not just calling in the rain or intending for there not to be rain or working with weather. They're also working with weather to happen and not to happen. People often think of that negotiation or that discussion in relationship to the weather or working in the spirit realm with weather is just to make it rain. But a lot of times it's not to have it rain, too. It's both. Oh, yeah, sure. In fact, it doesn't have to be just weather. We had some good experiences with some classes in Europe where we raised the temperature when it was very cold. You know, some people hearing that, it's mind-blowing. Oh, yeah, no. I receive you when you say that because I really know what you're talking about. How do other people receive what you just said as being valid? How do you know that it was you that impacted that or what you did? It's like with everything else. Some do, some don't. doesn't matter what it is. Can we talk and, a little? When you've done it enough, yes. when you've gotten enough responses, you know that, first of all, you can never take total credit for it. Right. Because it's a persuasion. 
And let's say a storm, to take a, a simple example, or a hurricane, as we do work with sometimes out here, um, it has its own intentions. It has its own spirit, its own ways in which it might go, but like even with a human being, to make the comparison, a human being might or might not do certain things at any given moment. And if someone persuades a person to do one thing or another, fine. That doesn't mean the person who persuaded them made it happen. Right. You know, in a sense, what we're talking about, too, is the issue that matter is animate. Yes. And I thought that was also very, very neat in your book that you talked about the ability to talk to things. I have this running joke with my car. I have been celebrating my car since I got it. And I mean, I clap and I say you're the greatest car I've ever had. And my car has never, ever had a problem in seven years. Not a problem. I have friends of mine who've gotten in the car and they break up laughing. I said, you don't understand. My car hears me. Yep, that's right. There's a very interesting relationship between us talking to things we think are inanimate but are animate. Fascinating dance. And here's the thing that I, that I tell people, you know, this is a point of view. Yes. Like we were talking about. It's just a point of view. You can take the point of view that they are inanimate and not conscious, or you can take the point of view that they are animate and conscious. The difference is, if you take the point of view that they're inanimate and not conscious, there's no relationship, and you have to take things as they come. When you take the other point of view and treat something like a car that way, you start to get effects. Now, all the cars I've had have been wonderful. Sometimes they feel a need for a new part or, or something else that they, they have to change. Sure. But every single time throughout all the cars I've ever had... If they break down, it's always conveniently in front of a gas station or in my driveway or right where somebody can come and get it fast. Very interesting. I want to talk to you a little bit about colors. I love that you mentioned colors and what they invoke and produce. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about what you and your wife do, putting the pink fog in places. I thought that was really neat, and it would be nice for the audience to hear that. Okay. People respond to different colors, but when you're doing it, when you are evoking a, a color uh, for a particular purpose, it's the purpose that is picked up. And the color, when you do it, is a symbol that you relate to. Okay? You mentioned Benin just briefly. Yes. If I were going to be doing working with colors to have positive effects, and one of the tribes there, I would have to use blue because blue was their tribal color, practically, their favorite color, the color that they responded to most, not red or green or anything else. Blue was would be the one that would have to be used in that context. But I could go there and, if you want to put it this way, invoke a pink fog for the purpose, in my mind, of creating friendly relationships, and they would respond to that, not because it's pink, but because... Pink was, but the, the friendly relationships were my intention. Do you think that the actual frequencies of the color have a certain biological effect on us? In, well, in, when we're talking about first level, of course they do. Okay. That's been demonstrated over and over again. But when we're talking about second level, telepathic level. Yes. Uh, then, then we're talking about the frequency of the intention. I liked that you also shared that one of the ways to help barking dogs stop barking is to picture them in blue light. <laughs> that was great. Yes, that's good. Talk about that. Well, because, again, it's the intention. If you think of blue light as calming uh, and you are projecting uh, an aura or a field of calmness, um, this is going to have a, an effect on the dog. One of the other things we do, and I think I wrote about it, but one of the other things we do, of course, is uh, use our imagination and create a thought form of the owner we don't have to know what the owner looks like, uh, petting the dog. And that calms them down also very fast. Oh, that's very neat. You must have a very interesting relationship with your wife. Do you want to oh, talk yes. a little bit about that? Well, <laughs> yes, we've been married. Uh, let's see, we last celebrated our 51st anniversary. Congratulations. That's Thank awesome. You. It is. It is a, a wonderful relationship. But like any relationship, it's a relationship that you have to continually cultivate. Yes. And not take for granted. We help each other, and she inspires me, and I inspire her, and 
She has been my test subject for many of my experiments uh, and gives me wonderful feedback, and she participates in everything I do, uh, and that makes it really good. Where did you both meet? Uh, We met in a small town in Michigan. Oh, wow. I happened to be living on a farm at the time. We were high school, became high school sweethearts. That's awesome. When you were a little boy, I know that you started to develop your skills and your knowledge in this area of Puna. Uh, But did you know before you were 14 and started actually learning, did you have any precog or ESP or extra developed sensory awareness? Do you remember? Oh, sure. Some of it was spontaneous and some of it was uh, subtle training with my father. And I say subtle, you know, he didn't really say anything, but we, like we would play uh, what I could call today, I might call it psychic chess. Uh, We would be playing chess when I was young. And uh, the game was to try and cloud the board uh, so that the other person couldn't tell what your next move was going to be. And so the, the trick was to be able to focus on what you wanted to do and cloud it from the other person at the same time. So that made it much more interesting. But spontaneously, my first all-out clairvoyant experience that I recall was when I was 12. Do you want to talk about it, or do you just want us to know about it? Well, it involved my father. We were in church, and my father went out, and suddenly everything blanked in front of me, and I saw him from a point of view across the street as he was walking in front of the church and collapsed. And I was with my younger brother and sister, and my first impulse was to run outside, but uh, I wasn't fully into it in those days and didn't have the trust as a a young teenager. And so I, I just stood there, and someone came in and told me that my father had just collapsed on the lawn. Did he die or he just collapsed? No, no. Okay. Uh, that, how, that was what might have been the beginning of the end, but uh, uh, no, he didn't die at that time. Wow, so that's when it started for you that you can recall. Yes. In your experience from all of the work that you've been doing and contributions you've been making in the area of healing and teaching, how do you see transmitting to others the most effectively to bring people more toward trusting themselves. Don't you find that we're in a time where people trust the external more than they trust themselves? Well, I think that's been the human condition. <laughs> since yeah, it's definitely the, definitely the human condition, but we've, we're more external, even we're more electronically tuned in, we're much more glued to computers and cell phones and well, tablets. I wouldn't, and, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put it that way so much. Uh, but it's the, the lack of self-trust. We don't live in a society where that is encouraged as a general rule. Right. We are still living in a society in an age where people mostly use criticism to try and make people better. And uh, it's probably the worst, most inefficient system anybody ever devised, but it's been around a long time, and so it's very familiar. Uh, but I think there's an awful lot. I did any group of people, let's say five to ten people together and ask them if they've ever had any psychic experiences of any kind. And there is always, almost everyone has had them. They're not talked about a lot, but they exist. So it's, it's there surrounding us. Now, at the same time, we have these external things that sometimes can be used as platforms for deeper experiences, even if it's a cell phone. Sure. Uh, but it's this lack of trust. So what we try to do what we try to, what I particularly try to do, is make things understandable, simple, and effective as possible, so that people don't have to try and figure it out or think it's so esoteric or feel that they have to be initiated to do something. I try to teach that this is all very human, very natural, and give people very simple ways to uh, experience it in their lives. How would you explain to the audience, in your experience? what the spirit of a place is. (laughs) There we have a problem, a little problem with language. But if you can think of it in the same way as the spirit of a person, uh, being the the field of consciousness would be one way to put it. You don't want to think of the spirit as separate, 
from the physical, but the physical is the expression of the spirit. And so anything that you can look at, it's almost like this way. We can talk about the spirit of a tree. We can also talk about the spirit of the forest. And we can go the other way and talk about the spirit of a leaf on the tree. And this is one of the ways to try and grasp the concept is in the same thing. We talk about the, uh, the spirit of a person. We can also talk about the spirit of an organ. But we can talk about the spirit of a family, talk about the spirit of a town, a state, a nation, because all of these are within each other or part of each other. And we're kind of when we focus, we're selecting but that spirit is, how can I put it, individualistic in the terms that we look at. So you can talk about the spirit of a forest, and it makes it a lot, e- lot easier to deal with the forest. In fact, we can talk about the word forest. That just means a whole bunch of trees and flowers and plants and animals and rocks and whatever there is there. Uh, but because our minds can can generalize so well, when we deal with the spirit of something general, we are dealing with its spirit, and we communicate with it that way. I'll share something personal with you. I was listening to these audio files of my cousin and myself and my sister, her husband, my other cousin, in an Alzheimer's unit visiting my mother. And I was tape recording stories of our family and my parents that were just remarkable. Both my parents have passed on. And it's so interesting. Last week, I was listening to these files And I could totally feel the spirit of my family. And even though my parents are gone, I still feel the spirit of my family and carry the spirit of my family with me. I mean, yeah, I believe that. Sure. And that even though two of the biggest members of the family have passed on, I feel their spirit too. And then you ask yourself the question, well, what is that? I don't know what it is, but I feel it. Well, you know, we can you can feel it, you can experience it, you can learn how to learn from it, work with it, and you don't have to have the problem, the tendency that is within us in these days is to try and explain it in some first level way. And it's not a first level experience. You're right. That's very astute. <laughs> That's very astute of you, Mr. Kahuna. <laughs> I like that you make the distinction between this first and second level way because I think many of us get caught up in that first level trying to explain it. And most of our experience doesn't live there. That's right. You talk about in the book a section on broadcasting, about how we personally broadcast and we telepathically broadcast where we're at to others, whether we know it or not, both positive and negative. And we're also influencing people when we're doing that, even if we don't know it. That's right. And and I wanted you to share a little bit about unintentional broadcasting. I thought this is a very important piece that many people could get a lot of value from if they heard you talk a little bit about that. Well, it's it's like you're broadcasting, uh, to make it simple and more understandable, you're broadcasting your feelings. Right. And um, no matter what kind of a face that you're putting on, you can you can fool a lot of people with that who uh, aren't aware of that. But here, here's an easy way to tell. When people are fully in the present and feeling good, other people react to them. They have a sense of warmth. Uh, you enjoy being with them. You just enjoy being around them. They try to explain it in terms of how they're physically behaving and physically smiling, but that's not it. It's this second level energetic communication that they're feeling. And when someone is thinking elsewhere, if their mind is not in the present moment, they happen to be sitting in a chair with you or or talking with you in a conversation, but their feelings are elsewhere, uh, in the past or the future, which is most common, you can tell that, that they don't seem to be present or they seem to be cold. That's how we interpret that, especially if someone does that habitually. And This is how we are broadcasting. We are broadcasting through our emotional field, to put it that way. And really, nothing is invisible in the emotional realm. It's always felt, isn't it, for the most part, on some level? No, not necessarily. Careful there. It's only felt if you're open to feeling. Correct. Correct. I'm supposing that based on what you said. Ah, well, okay. Sure. Yeah. In other words, if you're present, you're open to feeling. That's right. However, then comes the question of interpreting that feeling. And that's where people can have good experiences or not so good experiences, depending on how they're interpreting that. 
You know, so then it comes into the way you think, your beliefs and your ideas that modify the experience. Do you love your work? Oh, boy. You can tell. (laughs) Yeah, I love it so much, I'm planning on coming back again. I hope I come back again, too, and I hope we're able to meet. (laughs) Both this time around and the next time. You're a lot of fun. Thank you. Do people laugh a lot around you and have fun, too? Oh, I try to encourage that as much as possible. It's important, isn't it? Yes. I want to talk to you just a little bit briefly about the auric field. I love the way you wrote about that. And I want to just say something about Harold Burr, Dr. Burr, who came up with the theory of the electrodynamic theory of life. Can you talk a little bit about him and then we'll go into the human auras? Well, he did some uh, scientific measurements that where he was able to uh, actually determine at a first level that there was a field. And uh, then he went on to dis- do some other kinds of experience that uh, made that field more tangible and then even useful for diagnostic purposes and for healing purposes. Of course, his work, like Sheldrake's, was put down by the more objective community. But he did some very, very good uh, good work. And for anybody who really wants to get into it, that that would be one of the resources to study. What we work with is, first of all, the, moving into what you might call second level, uh, the assumption of the field. And then we work with expanding, contracting, intensifying, de-intensifying, and thought forming. Now, simple, when we say thought forming, this means using the imagination to color or form your aura into a semblance of a physical object, as an example. But most of the time, like when we use the, uh, our term for it is lakea, when we think of our aura and we expand it and imagine it and, and focus it uh, with colors, why we have those intentions. But we can also, because the way we look at it, our aura is infinite. Uh, we are everywhere and everything is everywhere. Uh, you can think of it as a bunch of radio stations coexisting uh, and they don't interfere with each other. Unless they get too close to the same frequency, it's like people meeting. I'd like to ask you if you could just briefly explain to people what an most people will have a sense of what that is. Basic, but yeah, let's go from the ground up. Okay. Okay. Well, the aura is just a term given to the personal. Let's call it work with people. uh, Your personal energy field. Uh, That's the easiest way to interpret it. Uh, So that we have this field of energy not surrounding us, but emanating from us. That's the way we like to look at it. And that uh, when we assume that the field is there, when we accept it, then we can be aware of it. We can be more sensitive to our surroundings, more sensitive to the reactions of our surroundings, including the people. And with intention, we can... Uh, help those surroundings, we can strengthen them, we can teach them, we can encourage better feelings, modify them. So it increases our awareness and our range of action. One of the interesting things I thought, too, about human auras is this ability to detect disease before it's fully manifest in the body. Yes. And through Curlian photography, and I realize the Russians are now finally funding this research, but, you know, they've been very advanced for a long time in the area of psi. You know that. Oh, yes. Can you talk a little bit about being able to detect disease before and bring the practicality of that into the audience? When you start to do it with something like Curlian photography or some of the other more mobile, uh, active kinds of uh, ways of making it visible, that becomes a question of interpretation. And it, it's all a question of interpretation. When you're doing it personally, uh, there's a technique in Hawaiian called ha-ha, which is running the hands uh, over the body, not touching it, but in the field, and being able to detect areas of tension. And those areas of tension, uh, depending on how tense they are and what the, the, the physical reaction is of the per- practitioner, uh, can give indications of where there is great tension and where there is even... Uh, not only potential, but existing disease, because the disease is always a tension effect. And so that's how we work with this. That's great. I like the name of that technique, the ha-ha. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's great. <laughs> now, you say in the book that if you can increase your aura, you will be treated better. What does that mean? Why does the enhancement of a personal auric field manifest itself as one of the things is that you'll be treated better? Explain well, that. It's like what we talked about before. 
when we talked about you, uh, a person uh, broadcasting a good feeling, uh, and this can be conscious or unconscious, and intensifying the energy field makes you feel more present. And if it's a good feeling, then people are going to react and respond to that. And if it's a, like I said, if it's a good one way, then you'll find strangers talking to you more easily. You'll find bank tellers smiling at you uh, more than they usually would. Uh, you'll find even uh, friends being friendlier. Uh, people will react to your field. Got it. And lastly, you talk about something called in here and out there. This is a context. It's on page 253 toward the second to last paragraph. You talk about that reality isn't just out there, something separate from what we think and feel. There's an intimate connection between in here and out there. One of the greatest adventures of life is exploring that connection. Yes. So I'd like you to just talk about that for a moment. Well, this goes back to the idea that there are no limits. And we take the idea of the aura. One of the common ideas is that it's a field that surrounds you and it it only extends out a certain distance. Our contention is, no, it's infinite. I can influence anything in the world if I focus on it. Now, how much I can influence depends on a lot of other factors, but I can think, uh, let me put it this way, this might make it easier. If I'm sitting in New York and I'm thinking about a beach here in Hawaii that I like very much, and the more I think about that and start, you know, recalling it and, and remembering and feeling how good it was, and my aura, the part of it that is in Hawaii, begins to intensify. And if I do that with enough focus, without even intending to, but just having the focus of that experience, uh, it's possible for somebody on that beach to notice something. And I haven't projected, we don't use that concept unless it's just for simple explanations. I have simply focused in that area and the part of my aura that's there begins to do something to the air. And it's possible, depending on how I'm focused and what how the awareness of the other person is, they might see a shimmering, they might see some kind of movement, or it's possible for a few moments they might even see me standing there. Now, this is because of this idea that reality isn't out there, separate. I don't have to send a part of myself to another part of the world. I just have to focus there. Now, this is kind of a deep concept. Definitely, definitely. Different from what a lot of people think, even about the psychic realm. But this is what we use and how we work and how we interpret experiences. Sounds beautiful. Have you ever been to a place and the spirit of the place to you appeared and felt broken? Broken. Or harmed. We, or harmed. We don't, we don't look at it that way. The spirit of a place sometimes can hold memories that are very unpleasant, like the spirit of a battlefield. Right. And uh, nothing is broken in the way that we interpret it, but, but there can be memories of tragedy as an example. Do you think the human spirit can be broken? No. How can you break something that isn't tangible? I'm more asking you in terms of the way people have languaged the realm yes, of I the know, spirit. I know. Yeah. In our in our terms, yes. What they're saying is that there's a part of that person which is under very high tension and uh, there can be physical effects, emotional effects and mental effects from that. Now, when we look at it this way, all we, we realize, all we have to do then is find some way to relieve that tension and the healing will happen. Have you ever witnessed a spontaneous, miraculous healing? Oh, sure. I have too, and it's the most amazing thing. It's so mind-blowing. That's right. And we never know the factors that, that got together that produce that release when it's really spontaneous. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. I'm still scratching my head. <laughs> You know, you're a great pleasure to talk with. I'm so delighted that you wrote yet another book and that you talked about some of the areas that need more flushing out. And I hope that everybody picks up the book, Changing Reality, Huna Practices to Create the Life You Want. I want to thank you very, very much for taking your time to come on the show. And it's a real honor and a pleasure. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking with you, too.
For those of you who would like to find out more about Serge Kahili King's work, you can go to Huna, H-U-N, like Nancy, A dot net, Huna dot org, and Aloha International dot org. Aloha. <laughs> I look forward to seeing you in Hawaii. Oh, good. Aloha. <laughs> it's rainmaking time. 